All right, thanks for the handoff, Scott. Uh, good morning, church. Good to be back with you. I know I've been out of the pulpit for a little bit, and it's uh, hard for me to believe we're in November, and there's some frigid mornings. Hopefully you woke up this morning and your heater was on. Uh, the holidays are almost here, and 2021 is almost in the record books. Seems like yesterday, 2021 just began. Uh, but we are continuing our series on the book of Exodus this morning. Um, I've had to miss part of the series because, as many of you know, my wife and I were expecting our third child, and we were on pins and needles through the month of October, uh, waiting for her to arrive. Um, so many of you have been praying for us. We just thank you so much for that, and um, we thank you for the, the, the love and the, the support, the, ca- the cards. We just praise God that NBC is a uh, church that takes seriously what it means to be the family of God. So thank you so much. Uh, let me start today with just a brief Erbig family update. Um, let me say first, our latest addition to the family is our newest uh, baby girl, Zoe Christine Erbig. Uh, she was born Monday night, October the 18th at 9.18 p.m., and she is just beautifully perfect. Uh, after she was born, in fact, I went back with her to the, uh, to the warmer, and she was sucking her thumb minutes after delivery. She's just been a rock star in terms of gaining weight, sleeping, doing everything babies should do. And uh, we, are just, we are just humbled and just say she's an answer to prayer. And so thank you again to many of you who have just been praying that everything would be smooth with the pregnancy. It, it was. And uh, at every turn, the doctors just continue to say everything looks great. In fact, you can see here Jenna is just uh, in love with her little sister already. Uh, it was a great, great moment when she got to meet her. And so we're humbled and we're thankful. Uh, second, let me offer a quick update on our son, Josiah. Um, as many of you know, uh, and have been asking about him. Uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, Josiah, our second child, was born with an undiagnosed genetic condition, which included a complex set of issues. Uh, the most pressing was a bone marrow failure disorder, which required a transplant back in April. And so we went to Children's Hospital of Philadelphia at the end of April, and we were supposed to be there for four to six weeks. Uh, the bone marrow transplant was a success. It's, it's going well. Um, I did get to see him on Halloween, and you can see he's just the cutest Sheriff Woody that you could have ever seen. Um, but he is still there, uh, just primarily for feeding-related issues at this point. Um, and we just, again, want to say thank you for all of those, those of you who have offered prayer and generosity and babysitting and encouraging words. Um, just thank you. And we uh, just covet your prayers continually for Josiah, that he would heal, that he would meet his milestones, and that he would uh, come home to be with us very soon. Because we do love all our children, and the Lord has taught us something different with each of them. Uh, Jenna was our first baby, Josiah was our miracle baby, and Zoe has been our grace baby. Uh, God's hand is on each of them. But as I stand here with you today and I just reflect on October 2021, we had the birth of a healthy, healthy daughter and the continued struggles of our son, I've wrestled with something in my heart. And the question I've asked is, Lord, Lord, how is it that I can have one perfectly healthy child and one who continues to struggle? How is it that we can't be together? It's been a month of joy and suffering. And I bring that up this morning, uh, not just as a way of update, but also to ask, is is that something you can resonate with? Is there a dissonance in your heart at times where you walk through seasons like that And you start to ask a natural question that arises in your heart, where is God? Where is 
God. Because God, how did you seemingly answer all our prayers for our daughter exactly as we prayed them, but at the same time, the answers to the prayers for our son seem at times just uneven, right? Two steps forward, one step back. There's a delay and another delay and another delay. It's in those moments that we really start to wonder what God is trying to teach us, and sometimes it is hard to pray. Have you ever been there? You know, your situation is different than ours, but the feeling is the same. It's it's an unexpected job loss. It's an unanticipated medical issue, and I know many are walking through that right now. Uh, It's children who choose to not follow the Lord. It's continued chaos in our world, and we feel this tension where God seems to answer some of our prayers perfectly, and yet other prayers, not so much. What do we do with that? Well, some people choose to get angry and bitter at God. Others choose to believe that those seemingly unanswered prayers mean that that God doesn't exist. But the reality is in this life, after the fall, challenging circumstances will come and enemies will attack. And it's in those moments and those seasons that we have a choice. We can choose to trust God's provision and tap into his power or... We can blame him for not answering our prayers exactly as we wanted him to. Where is God? That's the question. How do we answer that? Well, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 17, where we're going to look at two scenes. Exodus 17, I think, orients us to two, what I'm going to call two dangers in our life. First, we're going to see there's a danger inside, and then secondly, there's a danger outside. And so the first scene will teach us about God's provision in challenging circumstances. The second scene is going to teach us our need for God's power when enemies attack. So before we look at that text, let's pray and ask the Lord to speak to us today. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for your goodness, your grace, your love, your provision, your protection, Lord God, your guidance. Father, I pray for my friends who are here live, who are, who are listening at home, who are listening later on. Lord, I just pray that you would come, that you would, um, that you would hear our prayers, Lord, that you would step into, intercede, intervene in our situations, Lord. Help to build our faith that we would trust you more and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray that. Amen. Amen, amen. Well, the last two weeks of our series, Pastor Dave has walked us through some major pieces in the book of Exodus, if you've been following along with us. Uh, First, two weeks ago, we examined that well-known story about the Red Sea crossing, where God delivers his people, Israel, from the clutches of evil Pharaoh, defeating their enemies, fighting for them. And then immediately after that, the Israelites are walking through the wilderness, and they, they start complaining. They start grumbling. Now, Exodus 17, we find Israel still wandering through the wilderness, but they do camp at one place for a period of time, and there's some important events that occur. This is also the end of the first half of the book, because next week we're going to start looking at the episode with the Ten Commandments, which marks a a scene shift to Mount Sinai. So let's look at the circumstances in Exodus 17, verse 1. This is how it begins. At the Lord's command... The whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. And eventually they camped at Rephidim. 
Now, Exodus 17.1 is a transition verse, and it lets us know that the scene is shifting. The wilderness of sin, which kind of seems like a weird title, a weird phrase, but it actually refers to a desert region just outside Mount Sinai. The verse shows us that they're moving closer and closer to that place. And Rephidim is where they land and where both our scenes take place today. But we learn right away that there's a problem at Rephidim. This is what it says. It says, there was no water there for the people to drink. And you say, okay, that sounds like a problem. In fact, let me have some water. Have you ever been in a desert region with no water? Well, I've not traveled through many deserts in my lifetime, but one Uh, sticks out in my mind uh, that I've traveled through. I traveled by myself from Denver to San Francisco. And in between Denver and San Francisco is Nevada, right? Nevada is basically a desert. It's hot. Uh, There's sand for miles. And no offense to you if you're from Nevada, but I, you know, I remember traveling through the desert and about once every hundred miles in the northern part of Nevada, a little town pops up and I start to say, well, this, I I understand why this is where stories of aliens abducting people happened. (laughs) All right. I'm driving through this desert. I keep asking myself two questions. First, why do people live here? And then secondly, what would I do if my car broke down? Walk 50 miles to the nearest gas station, I guess. In fact, every time I stopped for gas, I made sure that I bought a bunch of water bottles in case I needed, needed water. And hopefully that illustrates how much of a problem this verse was for Israel. Because back in the ancient Near East, there were no Nalgene bottles, There was no ice chests to keep your food, your water cold. Your movements in that time were based on where you could get to, to water. And I want you to notice something. In Exodus 17, 1, at the very beginning of that verse, what does it say? It says, the Lord commanded them to go there. He commanded their move. In other words, God directed them to this very point. And so it seems that God wanted them to camp at a place where there was no water. Why? Well, I think the response to the Israelites reveals why God wanted them to do this. Look at verse 2. It says, so once more the people complained, right? Remember last week they were complaining a whole lot, against Moses, give us water to drink, they demanded. Now, again, you might remember back at the end of Exodus 15, verses 22 to 26, there Moses and the Israelites are traveling through the desert, and a similar thing happens. And even though that scene appears to overlap with our present text, I want to I go through this really quickly because there's some key differences, and most scholars believe them to be two separate scenes. So in Exodus 15, when they're confronted with that lack of water, the people grumble, they complain, yes, but then they desperately ask Moses, what are we going to drink, Moses? It's a question. What are we going to drink? We don't know what to do. And if you assume that Exodus 17 is a different scene, the people now have lost their patience and their inquiry has shifted to a demand. It's not a question anymore, it's a demand. And I want to go through it because it illustrates, even though we saw these things last week, that These things keep coming up in our life. We're going to keep coming back to places where there's no water. And this is where the danger inside rears its ugly head. Because again, you see, I think the reason God led them again to a place with no water was to test their faithfulness to him. And the reality is that confrontations with challenging circumstances reveal the condition of our hearts. 
Confrontations with challenging circumstances reveal the condition of our hearts. In other words, this scene shows that Israel didn't really trust God's provision. So those responses reveal what's inside. Now, all of us at some point in time are going to encounter a moment of no water, a no water situation, I'll call it, in our lives. When those come up, how will we respond? Now, my family story I share at the beginning, it it feels at times a bit like a no water situation. Countless times we've been told our son is close to coming home and only Then another barrier comes up, and we start to ask, God, why have you brought us to a place again, symbolically, where there's no water, right? where there's no refreshment? How do you respond when there's no water? Now, Moses, for his point, is a little offended, and he responds a bit bit tersely to the people. This is what he says in verse 2. He says, quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me, and why are you testing the Lord? Now, picture being Moses in this scene. You got a bunch of people surrounding you, the leader, and they're shouting, give us water, give us water now. Give us water, Moses. There's dagger in their, daggers in their eyes. Their voices are loud. They're, they're angry. And finally, Moses just shouts, be quiet. It's not my fault. And Moses' response draws out an important truth. The people's quarrel wasn't with him. It was with God. And so his second question about testing the Lord was an indictment on their hearts. Commentator D.K. Stewart, he puts it this way, and listen really carefully to this. He says, testing God, testing God always involves some degree of doubt about whether or not one's present circumstances are all that one deserves and whether or not God could or should have done a better job of providing one's needs. And I want you just to take that in for a second. Because have you ever been in a situation where you tested God? In other words, something happened in your life and you doubted God's goodness and wisdom? You wondered if God should have done a better job? Like, God, you didn't do... How about we give you a do-over, God? That is what the people of Israel are saying here. And then they take it another step in verse 3. It says this, But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? God, why did you bring us to a place with no water again? Now, some of us read that and you say, well, this sounds a whole lot like the situation the Israelites were in last week. And again, that's true. And again, I'm bringing it up because it's a reminder that we find ourselves in these situations over and over and over again. Our backs are against a wall. We are so hungry and thirsty that we're tormented. And we ask, God, why did you put us in this situation again? He wanted them to trust his provision. And that seems so simple, but you say, well, how do I trust God's provision? What does that look like? I mean, after all, am I supposed to let my child go, go hungry, go thirsty? And I think when we ask a question like this, we are getting at the tension between our responsibility and faith in God. And practically, what I think we need to do is push ourselves to wait just a bit longer 
for God to come through. Because in reality, as soon as suffering comes our way, we want to act. We want to do something. We want to we be the ones to, to, to save the day. But God puts us in situations to teach us how to be long-suffering. Waiting builds our faith in God, and he will show us when it's time to act. Now, remember, these were people who just two chapters ago experienced redemption. I mean, these people watched God part the Red Sea and destroy their enemies. I mean, come on. He made the skies rain with bread. But again, they're in this difficult place, in a difficult circumstance, and all they can say is, are you trying to kill us? Right? Why didn't you just leave us in slavery? I mean, that is so, that is so interesting. What, we want to go back to slavery. That's what they say. Have you ever been there? Again, you get to a place with no water again, and you start to ask, where is God? Why has he not answered our prayers the way we want him to? God, why did you not make it easier for us? Well, God brings them to this place because he wants to test their faithfulness. And the danger that's in our hearts, in our flesh, is that we'll stop trusting God's provision and turn against him. And that's what Israel did. And what we see in this scene is really three heart reactions to difficult circumstances. Three heart reactions to difficult circumstances. The first reaction is that we question. You saw the Israelites, right? When there was no water, what did the Israelites do? They demanded water. In other words, they they were questioning God's ability to provide. God, it's hard. Where are you? Second, we presume In other words, we think that God owes us something. The Israelites assumed God owed them an easy road. God, why is there not water right now? And when when God does not answer us the way we want in the timing we want, our hearts, finally, we start turning against him. And the final thing we do is we accuse. What did Israel say? They said, are you trying to kill us? Worse, are you trying to kill our children In other words, they're attributing nefarious motives to God. They're accusing him of being unloving and cruel. But again, didn't you just read the last few chapters? I mean, look at all that God did for them. It's in this moment that I think we often forget all that God does for us. And instead of trusting God's provision, we accuse him of neglect. Well, Moses right now, he's afraid for his life. And so he runs back to God and he asks God a question. He says this. Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? They're ready to stone me, God. Like, I'm going to die now. Can you hear the fear in his voice? I mean, it shows the Israelites have become some kind of ancient mob who were out to get him, which is so, it's so easy for us to do, especially when we don't get what we want. But look at how God responds in verse 5 and 6. It says this, the Lord said to Moses, walk out in front of the people Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water at the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. So there's witnesses, right? I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai, strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. And the people, then the people will be able to drink. And so Moses struck the rock as he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Moses took his staff, struck the rock, provision came gushing out for the people. 
Because you see, even in the midst of our anger and unbelief, God chooses to provide. Now, these verses illustrate something really, really deep. God brought Israel to a place where there was no water to test their faithfulness. Instead, they tried to test God, and what it did was it revealed the sin in their hearts. And sin requires judgment. And so when Moses takes his staff in his hand... It is a picture of what God does for us on the cross. It points forward. It foreshadows. Because the phrase, I will stand before you, draws out the image of a courtroom scene. God is essentially saying, I'm going to go to trial for you. I will take your place of judgment. And the staff symbolizes judgment against sin that must be punished. And so when Jesus Christ, who is often referred to as the rock, goes to the cross, he is struck for us. The staff strikes him. Judgment that should have fallen on us falls on him. And out of the rock comes what? Water that gushes. It doesn't just trickle out. It gushes out in abundance. Remember what Jesus says in John 7 after the festival of lights? Jesus says this. He says, on the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, anyone who is thirsty, come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink, for the scriptures declare rivers of living water will flow from his heart. Now, friends, have you ever come to a place where there's no water and you asked, where is God? And what this shows us is that God is right there with you. He is walking in the wilderness beside you, leading you as a pillar of light in the darkness. And even when we question him and our sin is revealed, he dies for us. Because in the gospel, we have water, all the water we can drink. God is a God who provides. And the danger inside, in our flesh, in our sin nature, makes us question and doubt God's provision. Because when challenging circumstances come, What we need to do is look back on all that God has done. But now we shift to our second scene in the chapter, and this scene shows us the second danger, and that's the danger outside. So first the danger inside, now the danger outside. Each of these passages probably could be their own sermon, but I do think they build on each other. So first your heart needs to trust God's provision because there will be enemies that attack, and you have to ask, am I ready? And so while Israel is still at Rephidim, after God has provided water from the rock, a second danger comes, a danger from outside. Look at verse 8. It says this, while the people of Israel were still at Rephidim, the warriors of Amalek attacked them. So first there's no water, now there's enemies. Now they're getting attacked by a massive army. And some of you are listening today and you're, you're, you're saying, I'm facing a challenging circumstance But others of you are listening today and you're saying, people are attacking me in some way. And when that happens, you need not only to trust God's provision, but you need to tap into God's power. Now, who were these warriors of Amalek? Well, if you're a biblical scholar, you might know that Amalek was the grandson of Esau. And you'll remember that Esau and his brother Jacob, whom the Israelites are descended from, had their quarrels. The Amalekites, as they came to be known, organized themselves into this nomadic people group, and they made their living by going out and attacking population groups and plundering their wealth. And one of the main reasons that they were able to accomplish this was because they had camels. Yes, 
camels. You can see a picture of them back here. And the reason the camels helped them is because they were able to move quickly and further across the desert. Remember, camels can store the water in their humps if you uh, didn't read that back in the day. It may be that the Amalekites made the trek to attack Israel because they heard they were out in the wilderness, far from other populations, and defenseless. So what happens? Well, look at verse 9. It says this. Moses commanded Joshua, when they saw the Amalekites, choose some men to go out and fight the army of Amalek for us. Tomorrow, I will stand at the top of the hill, holding the staff of God in my hand. And so Joshua did what Moses had commanded, and he fought the army of Amalek. Now Moses immediately recognizes the danger, and he sends Joshua out to get some men so they can defend themselves. And it's notable that this is the first time Joshua appears in the biblical account. He plays a major role as Moses' successor later on. But to understand what happens next in this scene, we need to understand just how amazingly outgunned the Israelites are. So let me mention three things. First, Israel did not have a standing army at this point. Right, so when Moses says, you got to go out and you got to choose some men to go and fight for us, he basically means, hey, can you go find some guys who are young enough that can fight? And they're not trained, but just like, hey, there's some, there's some guys out there, okay, pull them together. And then secondly, after that, Joshua does choose some men, but they got about a day to prepare for battle. So I don't know if you know anybody who's been in the army or been, been in, had to get in fighting mode, but like a day to prepare for battle is not a whole lot of time. It's likely that the Amalekites were arriving in waves, so they're there preparing for battle, and you see this massive army just slowly gathering and gathering and gathering, and it probably made the Israelites tremble a bit to see this well-trained army arriving and building in number. And then third, the Israelites didn't have any weapons, right? Remember, these were people who were just in slavery in Egypt. It's pretty hard to imagine the Egyptians were arming their slaves, So basically, the Israelites had the equivalent of Swiss army knives they found in the wilderness to fight with. The point is that Israel was hopelessly and hilariously outnumbered. And so just like the last scene where they had to trust, uh, where they had no water and they had to trust God's provision, now they got to tap into God's power to defeat the enemy. And the younger Joshua takes the men out to the battlefield. The older Moses heads to the high ground. It says this in verse 10. Moses, Aaron, and Hur climbed to the top of a nearby hill. As long as Moses held up the staff in his hand, the Israelites had the advantage. And whenever he dropped his hand, the Amalekites gained the advantage. Now, this scene in Exodus 17 is a reminder that God's power is needed in battle, but this method seems a bit strange, right? Remember, again, untrained men with Swiss Army knives against essentially experienced mercenaries on the other side. And God's method of deliverance is essentially um, hold your hands above your head, and if your arms get too tired, whoop, all right, you better, you better start bringing it back up. In fact, let's, let me just, let's, let's just see how hard this would be. How about everybody, everybody hold your hands above your head right now, okay? And let's see how long you can keep them up there before they start getting tired, all right, I tried this the other day, and it was about 10 seconds. My, I was ready to put my, put my hand down. All right, getting tired yet? Getting tired? Imagine, now imagine having a weight in your hand, right? It's starting to come down, come down. Okay, all right, you put your arms down. You get the point. Your arms get tired quickly. The action reminds us that Moses and his people, to Moses and the people, that God was sovereign over all. That's the point of lifting the, the staff above the head. 
And the only reason the Israelites could have victory over the Amalekites was because God was fighting for them in battle, giving them the victory. So this verse teaches us that when enemies attack and when circumstances come against us, there are two types of battles that we wage. First, there is a physical battle that requires engaged people. There's a physical battle that requires engaged people. So Joshua took a group of men and they went to the battlefield. Now in your life, you probably aren't picking up a literal sword to go out and fight, but the Lord might be calling you to do more than prayer. Right? Now, what does that look like, you say? Well, it might mean that uh, you need to help people with their physical needs. Okay, someone needs to move because their house got damaged. Or maybe there's a death of a loved one, and you need to be physically present with them as they grieve. Or you may need to advocate for people uh, because of injustice or neglect in people's lives. All of these require engaged people who do more than just pray when the battle comes. But secondly, it is very true that there is a spiritual battle and we need prayerful people. Never forget this. Do not underestimate the power of prayer. Do not underestimate the power of prayer because often we do feel like we should do something for people But knocking on the door of heaven, crying out to God, is the foundation for everything. Why? Because only tapping into God's power will give us the victory. Look at what Moses does in verse 12. Moses' arms soon became so tired he could no longer hold them up. And you you know what I'm talking about, right? So Aaron and Hur found a stone for him to sit on. And there they stood on each side of Moses holding up his hands, so his hands held steady until sunset, and I guess all their arms gave in, and as a result, Joshua overwhelmed the army of Amalek in battle. Now, I think it's important here to make a distinction about prayer, because so often we think about prayer and we picture what, what Jesus said in Matthew 6, right? What did Jesus say? He said, if you're going to pray, you've got to go in your room, you've got to close the door, you've got to talk to God. That is your personal communion with God, and that's so important. But Moses, Aaron, and her author a picture here of intercessory prayer. That is, prayers lifted up on the behalf of other people. And this is the type of prayer that is often lost in our churches. Do we pray for others? Or rather, why don't we pray for others? Why don't we lift them up? Well, maybe we think it doesn't work. I prayed before, and it didn't happen. Or maybe you think, well, somebody else is going to do it. That guy over there, he's the prayer warrior. He's going to lift them up. Or maybe you're just not disciplined enough. But it is so important. Now, you need to ask, what is intercession? Well, literally, to intercede means that we are to use our influence to persuade someone in authority to forgive or save another from punishment. And so Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 1, I urge you first to pray for all people. He says, ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. This is an others-directed prayer. And people I know who are gifted at intercessory prayer are literally crying out to God for other people. The prayers are like, Lord, help them. Lord, save them. Lord, transform them. This is a warrior type of prayer. Paul encourages us to lift up our hands in worshiping God in this prayer. So let me ask you today, who who are you interceding for? 
Who are you praying for today? And who is praying for you? Right? Who are your intercessors? Because we need them. Because circumstances will come and enemies will attack. And intercession is important because it teaches us to tap into God's power. And that's what the scene in Exodus 17 shows us. The only reason that Israel could win the battle with the Amalekites was because God fought for them and gave them the victory. And when Moses held his staff up over his head, it symbolized God's sovereignty in battle, and it also showed that God was superior over all people. Moses couldn't have done this by himself. He needed the help. He needed help keeping the staff up to remind him of what God could do. Now, just like in our first scene here, the Israelites' backs are against the wall. First, they needed to trust God's provision. Now, they needed to tap into God's power. And we do this by physically getting in the fight and engaging with people, but we also do it spiritually through prayer. Do you need to tap into God's power today? Now, when we talk about doing battle, another important question we need to ask is who are our enemies? Because I think, truthfully, Christians, we, we love this, this war language idea. We see a scene like this, we resonate with it. But we don't take a step back and ask, who is my enemy? Who is my enemy? And, and I was thinking about this question this week as I was listening to a webinar by Dr. Thaddeus Williams. And he was discussing how Christians have a tendency to engage in what's been called the, the culture war. Now, we just had some elections this last week, and I'm not suggesting there are not issues that we need to advocate for, important issues, uh, but we should define who our enemies are. And what Dr. Williams was showing me was that throughout Scripture, there's three enemies that are talked about, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the Bible talks differently about each one. So first, there is the flesh. Right, The flesh, the sin nature inside of us, is seen as evil and something we should, we should put to death because it leads to sin against God. And that's kind of what we saw in Exodus 17, 1-7. But second, there is the devil. Right, Peter, the apostle Peter, describes the devil this way in his letter to the exiles in chapter 5, verse 8. He says, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour now, there we see that the devil is an enemy who wants to eat us, right? He prowls around. He wants, he, we have to always be on our guard because he's going to attack. And James says we should resist him so that we can draw near to God. But then finally, there is the world. And when we think about culture wars, we often think about the world. And so you can read a passage like Exodus 17, 8 to 16, and you think, I need to wage war against the world. But the difference is that when the Bible talks about the world, the language used is often not one of defeat, but of liberation. People in the world are fellow image bearers of God. And so in a sense, our battle is not necessarily with them, but with the forces that influence them, the flesh and the devil. And when you think about it that way, fighting a culture war, yes, includes advocating for issues, but first and foremost, we need to lean into intercessory prayer. We should pray that the eyes of people would be opened and their hearts would be set free to pursue the things of God. And let me just state that th this is pretty hard to do. 
Because, you know, social media is not a helper with this, right? You know, I've got a lot of acquaintances who post things I, I disagree with, ideas and philosophies, I think, that go against God's will. And when somebody says something you disagree with, it's pretty easy just to label them an enemy. But what if I saw them as a person made in the image of God, and I, I start praying for their liberation from the flesh and the devil? What does Paul say? Paul says this in Ephesians 6. We are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly realms. The point is that our enemies are the flesh and the devil. And when the enemy attacks and the battle comes to us, tap into God's power. Because what we learn in Exodus 17 is the only way we win is by trusting God's sovereignty over all things. The spiritual battle we face is not a one-time skirmish. We live in a world at war. Enemies, flesh, and the devil. And in this ongoing war, we have to cultivate two disciplines. First, we have to remember what God has done. Look at Exodus 17, 14. It says this. After the victory, the Lord instructed Moses, write this down on a scroll as a permanent reminder and read it aloud to Joshua. See, God says, write it down. Write it down. Write it down. Make sure Joshua hears it. Why? Because in the future, he's going to go into battle again. And the next time you don't have water, and the next time an enemy attacks and you're outmatched, you will remember that I have not forgotten you. Write it down. I am with you, and I will win the battle for you. How do you remember what God has done in your life? Now, secondly, we have to return to God and his word daily. Look at how the chapter concludes in verse 15. It says this, Moses built an altar there, this is at Rephidim, and named it Yahweh Nisi, which means the Lord is my banner. Now, in order for Israel to remember, what they often would do is they would build altars, altars that were created for the purpose of worshiping God, and it always involved an expression of gratitude. Whenever the Israelites went, they would build altars because they they wanted to remember how important it was to worship God, and sometimes they would give them names like this one here, Yahweh Nisi, which means God is my, it says here, God is my banner, but literally, God is my signal pole or banner. And and basically what this refers to is a decorated pole that was high enough for the people to see it. It's kind of like a flagpole. And most often this was used in military contests where an army would rally, they would regroup, they would return for instructions. In other words, God gave them the victory. We need to tap into his power. We need to come back to that pole as a rallying point when the enemy attacks over and over again, when the danger comes from outside. Are you returning to the Lord daily to remind yourself about his provision and power? In other words, I'm asking, what is your spiritual rallying point? What is your spiritual rallying point? You know, when I was a a young boy, (laughs) uh, super soaker water guns were all the rage. Uh, And my friends and I, we would go out and we would have skirmishes. We would divide up into teams. We would have a water war, and we would go out on the battlefield. We would get get drenched, and we would hopefully drench the other team, and then we would always return to, or we would regroup 
at some place and encourage one another. We always had a rallying place for our team. And the same needs to be true in our spiritual lives. For Amanda and I, over the last year of our journey with our our son, we've had these weekly Zoom meetings with friends who've prayed for us and spurred us on. And we've seen a lot of prayers answered. That was our spiritual rallying point. What's your spiritual rallying point? Maybe it's a time of prayer before bed. Maybe, Maybe it's a morning place that you read your Bible. How do you return to God and get encouragement to keep going? What is the signal pole of your life where you need to come back to and hear from God? Because as we saw today, when Israel had no water and when Israel was outmatched, what God wanted was for them to look not to their own strength, but to his, to trust his provision, to tap into his power. Don't forget that I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, he says, for a purpose. Because, friends, there are moments, there are moments in your life when you start to ask, where is God? And it doesn't have to be the hardship of a child, but I guarantee you everyone has something. When circumstances and enemies come for you, will you recognize the dangers both inside and outside? Will you turn toward God, not away from him? He is our signal pole, our banner, where we can rally for help in our time of need. And so let me invite the worship team to come back on stage for one final song. And as they come back on stage today, I want want to invite everybody to stand. You can stand up. And uh, in just a moment, I want to ask you to lift your hands toward heaven as we just did before, just like Moses did. We're going to hold them high. Hold on one second. I want to give you a chance to to get through the rest of the sermon, not too long. (laughs) Moses held up his staff to symbolize that God was sovereign above their enemies, that he rules the natural world, that he can provide water where there's no water. So lift your hands up now, just like Moses did, and receive this. I don't know what you're walking through today, but as you hold your hands above your head and as your arms are getting tired, just receive this truth. Jesus fought the battle for you and he now intercedes for you. He is our rock from which water gushes. He is our banner, our signal pole to whom we can rally around and constantly return. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us this in 725. He says, therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Keep holding those hands up. He is the rock from which living waters gush, and he is the warrior king who will one day return to make all things right. But until that time, trust God's provision, tap into God's power. Amen? If you're getting tired, you can put your hands down or you can keep them up. Either way, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and your grace and your love and the way that you intercede for us, the way that you have given yourself for us, the way you fight for us, Lord, and the way you walk through the desert with us, Lord God. Father, would you be with my friends today? May you lift our eyes up to you, to the hills, and to know you always are there, that you are the God of angel armies. You are a mighty fortress 
May you build our trust. May you build our faith. And may we always come back to the cross, our rallying point. In Jesus' name we pray that. Amen.